Hey, it's Travis. I wanted to take this moment to discuss our sponsor, BetterHelp. I used to think talking to a therapist was a sign of weakness until I started talking to one. It has really helped me limit the negative chatter that can infiltrate my brain. Therapy has helped me become a more insightful person, father, and husband. That's why I'm excited to tell you about BetterHelp. Their online platform makes finding a therapist incredibly easy. Fill out a brief questionnaire and you will be matched with a therapist in just a few days. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash thank you notes, betterhelp.com forward slash thank you notes, or click the link in my show notes. In doing so, you will be helping the show and you will receive 10% off your first month. If you aren't clicking with your therapist, if you're not getting a good vibe, BetterHelp will allow you to switch your therapist at any time with no additional cost. Online therapy is a game changer for me. I have such an erratic schedule. I work nights, weekends, late, early, holidays, you name it. Being able to video call my therapist from my phone in a call room, at work, or in my car, or whatever, it's extremely convenient for me and it allows me the time and the, the place to actually get my therapy in. So if you're struggling, if you need to talk to somebody, go to betterhelp.com forward slash thank you notes and they'll get you set up with somebody. This has been my thank you note to BetterHelp for supporting this show. Hi, welcome to the Thank You Notes podcast. My name is Travis. I'm the host. On this show, we bring people on and read them a thank you note for something that they've done that we're thankful for. In exchange, they bring in a note for someone or something that they're thankful for and they feel deserves a public display of gratitude. First order of business is I'd like people to write reviews, preferably five-star ones, but if that's not the way you feel, so be it. It really helps in terms of exposure and bringing new people to the show and blowing this thing up if the more reviews we get. So please do that. My guest today is Daniel Chavez. Daniel and I have been friends for probably about 14 or 15 years. He was a Texas State Trooper when we met. He then went into the Secret Service and has now transitioned into private security. We talk about his time in law enforcement. We talk about when we met the time I saved his life, and he thanks one of his mentors from his Texas State Trooper days. So let's get to it. Here's Daniel Chavez. Uh, is that brown in there? No, that's my daughter's water. Oh, okay. I was like, that is a that is a rookie move if your daughter uh, starts drinking on your, your bourbon. No, nah, man. To be honest with you, I don't really drink that much anymore. I drink a couple times a month, if that. I go through spurts where I don't at all, and those spurts are called work. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, when I work, it's often for like, like, I just got back from Cambridge, and I was there for like five days. When I'm in work mode, we work like 14, 15 hours a day, depending on the schedule. So I honestly just go back to my hotel room and crash. Same in the city. It's not like I'm meeting, meeting women to go on a date at 11 o'clock at night when I have to be back up at 6 a.m. Not ideal for drinking. Yeah. For me, I, I have a very serious work mode. When I'm off, uh, I'm pretty lame. You know, I'll, I'll watch uh, some sweet Netflix or something that I, I've been kind of neglecting, and I'll have a cocktail or two at night. This is Daniel Chavez. He and I have been friends for 
how long? Since probably since 2005, 2006. And when I met you, you were a Texas State Trooper. Do you remember where you met me specifically? Time and place? I do. I think it was probably the Houston Rodeo Cookoff. No, it was in the bathroom at a med school, like semi-formal function. I was in the bathroom using the urinal. You either, ye- I think you yelled "trooper," and I looked at you and I had no idea who you were. And I was like, I telling people all night that I sold like insurance. I, one guy I told I worked in bank in banking. He worked in banking. Then he started asking me questions, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know, man. Well, the first I had heard of you is that we were going to use you for a video where we were going to have somebody from our class dressed up like a prostitute. <laughs> and you were going to come up in your squad car and you were going to give us the footage from your dash cam. You were going to rough him up a little bit. And so that, that's when I first learned of Chavez. I remember meeting you in that bathroom and then you just started hanging out. And then we started the running club and yeah, went from there. It's funny because I was friends with Scott first from college. I meet meet you guys five years after knowing Scott. and I became probably closest with you and Pete. And and a lot of that comes down to like Scott was in serious relationships throughout med school. You know, the most obviously his wife for more than half of that. It just you, me and Pete were like bachelor guys. And yeah, we just became like a trio, I guess, for the most part. Yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah. This is the uh, the Thank You Notes podcast, so I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, do you write Thank You Notes, Daniel Chavez? I rarely. Obviously, high school graduation, when you get a ton of gifts, my mom sat me down and was like, you're going to write a thank you note. And that's fine, but you get gifts from people from church that you kind of know. You don't know what to say. I put a pretty standard line about thank you for the money. You know, I'm going to use this da, 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 for college, for books, and can't wait to watch some Texas A&M football, something real blase, you know. I haven't written an actual thank you note in some time. When I was dating, I had to write, like, thank you type notes. And uh, those became expected, I think, when you send a gift. Uh, The note was more important than the gift itself. True. So what do you do when you receive a gift? Usually if I get it in person, I'm very grateful. More text than phone, I, I think. Actually, being on phone calls is a lost art, much like writing thank you notes was a lost art from a, a previous generation, which you have not lost that art. But our, most of our generation has uh, most people don't use the phone much other than texting. So I'll, I'll generally shoot a text or something uh, or just give them a quick phone call. Say thank you if it's somebody I really want to talk to. I'm I'm not really great at that. Now, what about your son? Is he are you making him write thank you notes? I got to be honest with you. I don't know if he writes thank you notes. Um, <laughs> he's at my my ex's primarily, so I don't know if he's writing thank you notes. He just had his first communion. I hope he's writing some thank you notes, but he does write some cards. Like he, he'll draw pictures and, and write thank you, but I don't know that he's writing actual thank you notes yet. It was such a big deal for me because my, my mom was fanatical about it. It's funny because I I say thank you for stuff, but I recently, uh, I have two nephews and both are in college, and I gave them each cash for graduating high school. And one of them is over the top grateful every time you see him. And the other one, even like Christmas, I handed him a card and there was money. He opened it up, looked at the money, put it in his pocket, and didn't even acknowledge that I was standing in front of him. I Venmoed him cash for graduation, 
And my sister asked, like, oh, did he did he text you or anything? A thank you. I was like, no. And it's never happened. And I don't know why it kind of rubbed me the wrong way since I'm not a big thank you person. But it, it made me laugh. I was like, huh, OK. But he's a good kid. So, I mean, I can't be upset about it. It's definitely a learned behavior. And it's definitely something you have to teach a kid. Or he just doesn't really care for me. There's a little probably a mix of that as well. I wasn't going to say that, but yeah. <laughs> so when I met you, you were a Texas State Trooper. What made you decide to join law enforcement? I have an aunt who's a postal inspector, and she'd always kind of talk to me about law enforcement. But my roots of it came back to a family vacation in Washington, D.C. You know, the old school drive the family suburban across country, stay in cheap motels. And then we went to D.C. And I remember going to the White House. And I weared out every single Secret Service agent and uniform division officer asking questions. In, in the back of my mind, I always kind of wanted to do it. And I had a perfect setup at Texas A&M. I had that degree in agriculture, economics, which is pretty much what most of your elite law enforcement uh, <laughs> officers and agents have a degree in agriculture. So how does one become a Texas state trooper? Um, it's not that sexy. Literally, I, I wanted to do it and they weren't hiring when I first got out of college. So I took a sales job for a year and then I took a really sexy, sexy job at the company that picks you up. That's right. Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Uh, I had two roommates that worked there and they're like, hey, if you want to come over here and work, it's a little more money than you're making now. And I did. Seven months went by and I got hired by the troopers. They had a big hiring push and I got hired from the day I turned in my application. Probably three months later, I was in the academy, which is pretty unprecedented at that time. It was usually a pretty lengthy process. I mean, they did everything. We did a PT test, panel interview, and then uh, a written test. And if you can believe that there were a few people that didn't pass the, the written test to be a uniformed state trooper, but there were. And they were really, really cool about it. They said, hey, they listed three names out of like the 75 that were taking the test. Can you step in the hallway? And the door hadn't even fully shut when they said everyone in this room has passed. And everyone just started cheering. And I'm sure the guys in the hallway could hear as they were about to find out they did not pass. Real class, real class. So when you after you pass your test, how do you find kind of find your niche? Right before you graduate, they give you a choice, location or service. And I wanted to be a highway patrol trooper. And so I said, I, highway patrol. I didn't care about the location. You still put a preference for location, but I was highly expecting to be sent off to like Uvalde or somewhere like uh, El Capitan, somewhere real desolate. I ended up getting Houston, which is my hometown. So they gave me both. But the options were pretty minimal. You have driver's license division, which I don't think they run anymore. They had the Highway Patrol, which is the biggest. They had license and weight, the guys who pull over the big 18-wheelers. And then you had the Capitol Police, which would be based out of Austin. They're all good choices, but I really wanted to be in the Highway Patrol. So when you finally got on the job, was it different than you expected, or did you kind of know what you were getting into? I'd never been a police officer, so it was. I had a really bad FTO initially. He was younger than me. He didn't like me. He called me a college boy a lot. He's from New Orleans. Something about him, I did not get off to a good start with him. And Before you keep going, what's an FTO? Uh, field training officer. And they do like weekly write-ups. And his write-ups were basically setting me up for being washed out after six months. And uh, my sergeant ended up switching me out with a much more experienced trooper. And then I was good to go. The first few months, I really didn't know what the job was. I just hated coming to work. 
because this guy was just miserable to work with and he just didn't like me. I always describe it as the greatest job I ever left. Every day was an adventure. It didn't have to be, but it could be. It was what you made of it. You get in the car, you call on the radio, and you just go to work. You didn't have to go see your sergeant unless you were in trouble. So I saw the sergeant once in a while. But yeah, it was it was a great job, man. You just get out there. Yeah, it was whatever you want to make of it. What would you say your your, your biggest accomplishment as a Texas State Trooper was? I never received a ton of awards, I'll tell you that. Um, there were two accolades. One went to the head of the Highway Patrol. It was a permanent letter in my file. I'll be as brief as possible. I pulled a car over going like 85 miles an hour down I-45 in Houston. Heavy traffic. So I get over, I pulled the car over, guy's sweating profusely. There's a bunch of broken glass in the car. His windows aren't broken. So that's what you call a clue in law enforcement. The car smelled uh, burnt marijuana. He'd been smoking weed. So I had him step out of the car. I told him I was going to look for the, the joint, handcuffed him, read him as Miranda. And I go in and I find a briefcase. And I said, is this yours? And there was other stuff in the car that was clearly not his. And uh, opened it up. And he just sat there, didn't say a word. And inside of it was a, a little bag with jewelry, a passport, and a bunch of other paperwork. I find some business cards, called the guy. The funniest part of the story. So he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, um, I told him who I was. And he did, he was oblivious to the Hawaii State Trooper was calling him on the phone. And I was like, hey, uh, you having a good day? And he's like, uh, yeah. yeah. And then he paused. He's like, actually, no, my car just got broken into. I said, oh, yeah, when? It's like like 10 minutes ago. So I said, where are you at? And he was like two mile markers down the road on I-45. So he comes down and uh, I show him the briefcase. And he's like, man, you just saved me. He's like, I was going on a foreign trip. But I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, oh, great, great. I was like, well, where did it happen for my report? Man, I was just buying a couple of magazines at the Adult Emporium. And uh, he just said it so, like, matter of fact. Those places back in the day didn't have windows on them. So he was inside, and this guy had smashed, like, four different windows open and grabbed his briefcase and other stuff. So I got a letter in my file for that. That was the only noteworthy letter in my file. And then I think the biggest thing I ever did was I uh, – got a, a kid I, who was technically not kidnapped. There was not an Amber Alert. His father, who had a protective order against him. It was my first night alone, and I was working a midnight shift, and I pulled this car over. Guy didn't have driver's license, didn't have any ID. There was a baby in the back seat, and he was a huge dude. Not a giant, but bit, way, way bigger than me, and the tone goes off on the car when I run his information. That's not a good sign. I called him on the phone. They're like, yeah, he's got a protective order. Is there a kid in the car? Turns out he had taken his kid, drove across state lines, and was on the, the process of bringing the kid back. The Amber Alert had not been issued yet. I guess I didn't technically save a kidnapped child, but I would have. So that was that was kind of exciting. That is kind of exciting. So yeah. how long were you a state trooper for? Right at five years. Yeah, just, just enough to get in some trouble, good and bad. I got out just in the nick of time, I would say. But it was it was the greatest job I ever left. Take me through how you end up getting into the Secret Service. I started that application online multiple times, and it and I always would put it away. I mean, the first twenty pages of any government application is name, social security number, addresses, real blase stuff. But once you get down to the, there were eight questions called KSAs, knowledge, skills, and abilities. And I guess in my head, I was like, man, they're only looking for special forces, guys. These are Navy SEAL questions. When you realize, once you're a part of the organization, you realize there are those guys, but that's not everyone. And I was more than qualified to be there. So I probably could have gotten to the Secret Service younger 
if I had just filled out the application and turned it in. But it was about a year to the day from when I applied that I got hired. And then I started the academy about a year after I applied. Yeah. And how long does it take to go through the academy? So you go to two, you go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center or FLETSI in uh, Glencoe, Georgia, known to the locals as Fleetech. Um, you do that for your general, like essentially a general police academy for federal agents. And you have everyone from Bureau of Prisons, ATF, uh, the State Department sends DSS agents there. And once you graduate, you are a federal agent. And then the Secret Service sends you through an additional four months in Maryland at our training facility, the Rally Training Facility. And you go through counterfeit crimes, credit card crimes. Then you do your protection block. And it's basically your Secret Service specific training. What kind of stuff were you looking forward to doing as a Secret Service agent? Protection. I did not want to do the investigations of the Secret Service. It is banking investigations. Um, they're not sexy. They're not fun. There, there are a couple cool investigations I was a part of. If I wanted to do cool investigations, I would have stayed with Texas DPS and tried to be a Texas Ranger. Um, I would not have come to the Secret Service for the investigations because I started in New York. And at least 60 percent of what you do in New York is protection related. The UN's there. So you have foreign heads of state, which we protect, come in. I think we hosted like 250, 260 visits a year from foreign heads of state. The actual UN, UNGA would come in. And that could be anywhere from 120 to 150 heads of state come in. Regardless of political affiliation, POTUS and VPOTUS always come to New York because there's money from both sides of the aisle. It's one of the biggest fundraising areas any president or vice president can go to and raise money for the party. So it, it was a lot of protection. And the, the frustration would be you'd be in the middle of an investigation and then you would go on a one week protection assignment. So the U.S. attorneys would, would get kind of tired of dealing with us because they would call you for a piece of paper, you know, or, or to get something done. You're like, hey, I'm on a protection assignment or I'm on a trip for another protection assignment. But it was a great protection offer. So when you're doing a protection, let's say you have a, a head of state coming to the U.N., take me through, like, what was your job getting prepared for them being there? If you're the advance, like the lead advance, which is the highest part of the advance, you'll start off with a mission meeting. And a mission is essentially a embassy, but smaller. Embassies are only located in Washington, D.C. Missions are the equivalent of those in other cities throughout the country. So you would sit down with the mission. And that would be their staff. And you'd say, hey, where's the president or prime minister? Let's go over the schedule. And, and you would start there. So you would determine what the sites would be. And based off the sites, you try to get a timeline of what the sites were going to be. And then you would run your routes, which in New York, you, you try to put an estimate of how long it takes to get from site to site. But if you've been to New York, you know how heavy traffic is. You generally want to run your routes like at three in the morning when the least amount of traffic's on the road. And then you just you guess what the traffic situation is going to be. Then you have the visit itself where you'll pick them up in an airport, you motorcade them to their hotel, and you just start the visit. You just start going through it. And uh, we call that game day, which is uh, the most fun part because finally you actually, all the hard work is done. Every, all the paperwork's been approved. Then you actually just get to go do the work. You've told me some, some of the trips that you've taken. What were some of the more noteworthy experiences that you had as a Secret Service agent? The trip that always sticks out in my mind, I always tell people, in some ways, it was the best trip I ever had. We were in Lithuania for then Vice President Joe Biden. And I was on a car plane, which is a, a C-130, where we load the vehicles and everything else, and about like 40 or 50 of us. And I was just supposed to post stand, like hold post at his hotel. We got there, and for the first two days, 
we had a great trip. We're kind of exploring. You're not really doing a whole lot of work the first day or two as a post standard because he's not there. And then it happened the day before the visit. I got norovirus mm. and the hotel that we were staying at was like, it's not from us. Well, it went off like wildfire. Apparently, we brought it from stateside and over 40 of us got norovirus. And you've had it before. That is not fun. It's the most miserable thing. You couldn't hold down water. You know what it is. In that sense, it was the most miserable trip. But I've never seen a group of strangers bond together so tightly and try and help each other out because everyone was so sick. It was a cool experience just because everyone worked together well. But but it was physically miserable. So then what happens if the vice president's supposed to be there tomorrow and everybody has diarrhea? Like you just, you just <laughs> uh, he still can. He's, he's still. Yeah, everyone fought through it. Looking back, maybe they should have told him not to come. At that point, maybe it hadn't hit as many of us as they thought. Almost everyone got it. It was it was really bad. And then, of course, the medical unit that comes with him, they have to set aside medical stuff for him. They're there for us, too. They ran out of meds and everything they had. They're like, sorry, it's for him. Uh, it was it was hard to find even Gatorade or any type of electrolytes in Lithuania. Not not great in that respect. But but it was a great team building trip. Did you ever get to drive the beast? No, uh, I've, I've driven limos, but so the beast is specifically uh, run by our transportation security section called TS. And everyone has a what they call a satellite. Some guys go to the first lady. Some guys go to TS. Some guys do some counter surveillance work. There's all sorts of things. And that's just an assignment that lasts a year and a half to two years out of your six years stand on the president. So, no, I did not. I'd never drove the beast. Best I did was open the doors a few times for the president. But no, only only those guys drive the beast. What was the scariest thing that you ever you were ever a part of in the Secret Service? Were you ever in any like real danger? I don't feel like in the Secret Service I was. And maybe that's because the the state police was a little more dangerous. I mean, you got in fights, you're you're in pursuits, and even that didn't feel dangerous at the time. Looking back, I guess I took like some of the things that I did in the service for granted that they were not safe, but I'd go out by myself to try and do an interview and I got reprimanded because I was used to working by myself for the most part. And I, and that wasn't safe to interview anyone by yourself. You've got to go two up. The most dangerous thing I probably did in the service, I was in the protective intelligence squad in New York. So if you send a threat to the president, that's the squad that in whatever city that gets assigned it, they have to go find you. Very few people are out there that are, you know, marksmen that are going to kill the president. What you're ultimately dealing with quite often are emotionally disturbed people. And they're bipolar, they have schizophrenia. And when you locate them, that can be dangerous. A big part of that job is talking them into going to a hospital, which we can't mandate, but we can talk them into it. And I worked with some guys who are really good at talking them into going to Bellevue, into the psych ward and checking themselves in for 72 hours and trying to get them help. So sometimes those situations could be erratic. You came in at the wrong time, especially if they feel like the government's out to get them. That can be a little hairy. I remember once when I was a medical student, I was on my psych rotation and we had a guy on our service who was adamant that he was going to kill Ronald Reagan. Well, <laughs> Ronald Reagan had been dead for like 15 years. The Secret Service still had to come out. We, we still had to report it. Secret Service had to come out and interview this guy. They they probably did, if I had to guess, because at that time, Nancy Reagan was still alive. 
And you always worry about the nexus to another protectee. I know that it sounds bizarre, right? You don't really want to be the, the, the people that didn't drop follow up on that. And then 100%. No, 100%. But he had no idea Reagan had passed away. We told him and he was, no, you're, you're not. That's not right. No. Yeah, I saw him yeah. on TV. And... Well, that's solid reasoning. Uh, so then how long were you ultimately in the Secret Service? 14 and a half years. I just left at the end of April. Five and a half years shy of a full pension. Now, you do private security now for high net worth individuals. Is that correct? Correct. Is it a harder job? Is it a different job? What what kind of stuff are you getting into? It's it's definitely different with the president or vice president or those protectees. There's a huge staff that handles most of their like movements and stuff. And they'll go over that with you and say, hey, the protectees going here or there. There's not as big of a staff presence on private individuals. You would think there is. So you have to wear a lot of hats. And sometimes you're your security, sometimes you are part executive assistant. I, I'm not too proud to say that we've got sent out to get them food and stuff. And that's fine. They compensate us extremely well. I'm very fortunate to have gotten the job I got. How did you get the job? A former colleague of mine who was in New York with me, former Secret Service agent who left the job. I think he left five or six years prior, and he did a few different jobs within the private sector. He landed this one, I think, about a year and a half ago, and he was he decided to build a team of exec, for executive protection for the owners of a company. He presented it to them. They wanted it, and then he had the challenge of finding guys that were willing to leave government service to do it. So so is it, is it essentially like your Secret Service job in that, in that, like the responsibilities, but you just have less resources, or how does that go about You definitely have less resources and you have no authority. Think about that. I still carry a gun. I'm allowed to carry a gun, but I have no authority. I don't carry handcuffs. I can't arrest anyone. You get compliance, voluntary compliance. That's the word. So if I tell somebody on the streets of New York City, as a New York City police officer, stop. We're holding up the sidewalk. You have a uniform, a badge, and a gun, and they have to comply. If they don't comply, you could arrest them or at least detain them. Secret Service, same thing. You establish a zone of protection for any protectee, a Secret Service protect. It's a federal law. So if they don't comply, you could arrest them or detain them. As a private security professional, you do your best, but you're not detaining anyone. You know, you're you're just a private citizen out there. You ultimately went there because the the schedule allows you more time with your kid. Is there is there any other any other, anything else that made you jump? You know, it, COVID changed a lot of things for a lot of people. I got in COVID shape, which means different things for people. I got really good shape during COVID. I was doing like 30,000 steps a day. I, I had a dog who was in better shape then. So we'd walk five or six miles throughout the day. I wasn't going into work very often because of COVID. They really limited who who'd go into the White House or the trips we were on. I was running three miles, walking another three after the run. What I learned is what I could do with my free time, because I hadn't had any free time over the past 14 and a half years. Then COVID went away, and then I went back to work, and then we, we had a change of administration, and quality of life dropped off significantly just because of the new mission. And I didn't see my son for over two months at one point, which is, I mean, you're a father, you know how that's a failure on me. I could blame my job all, but the job isn't there for me. I took the job, it's a career, and I'm not bad mouthing the service. I just realized I, I was losing a relationship with my son. So when that came in, Uh, there's a huge monetary component of it. It's a risk because I, I left government service, which is a guaranteed paycheck for life if I got my pension. 
But I don't know. I looked at I looked at all the risk associated with it. There's definitely a, an uptick on salary. There's an uptick on stock and everything without getting too into it. But yeah, there's a monetary uptick and I have a ton of free time. So more money, less hours, more time with your son. <laughs> I do work a lot. I don't want you to think I don't work a lot, but it's I'm never going to work as much as I did in the Secret Service. All right, man. So I've written you a thank you note. Oh, man. Dear Chavez, I don't think I have ever officially thanked you for the life of civic service you have led. Only in my middle ages have I developed something resembling selflessness, but you have been putting yourself in harm's way for the bulk of your adult life, for the good of your community and your country. Thank you for that. I know you did not take the responsibility of these positions lightly. On a more personal note, you've been a wonderful friend since I've met you. When we met in my mid-twenties, I was a buffoon with little respect for others. (laughs) (laughs) You have always been a model of maturity while still being able to have a good time. Your son has an exceptional role model in you for his entry into manhood. Hope to see you soon, Travis. Wow. That was really good, Travis. <laughs> I was I I listened to all your episodes. I, that's top tier. Are you are you number one fan? Am I number one fan on your podcast? Possibly. You could be. Are you just using me for my potential connection to former White Houses? I have no connections to Barack Obama to get you. I just want you to know that. No, I I hadn't even thought of using you for your connections to. Oh, that's good. That would blow up your podcast. No, Rocco said I'm going to have Obama on in two years. I believe that. Yeah, I listened to that one. Uh, I could see that. I think President Obama likes to keep, you know, do what's hot in the streets. I think the Thank You Nuts podcast could be that. This is neither hot nor in the streets. It's in a closet in East Dallas. I think that's the charm. So who did you write a thank you note to? First off, mine's a thank you text. Thank you text. Yes, uh, because I didn't have any stationery. But I I think I will put this onto a, a thank you card and send it. I wrote it to a friend of mine named Brandon Best, who's a Texas Ranger. He was a trooper when I first became a trooper. He's been a mentor of mine for many years, I guess almost 20 years now. Yeah. All right, let's see, let's hear it. Brandon, thank you. Thank you for your friendship and mentorship over the years. You took the time in 2003 to become friends with a rookie state trooper. Soon after I arrived in Baytown, you promoted. You continue to stay in touch and look after me. You taught me what it was to be a good trooper and showed me what it took to become a good investigator. You encouraged me to promote when I first became eligible. But when I decided that I wanted to leave DPS to become a Secret Service agent, you simply said, our loss is their gain. You flew to Washington, D.C. for my graduation, which meant more to me than anything that you know. You continually have stayed in contact with me throughout the years and throughout my career. I don't think I've ever expressed how grateful I am for having you in my life. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Your friend, Daniel Chavez. Not as good as yours. I disagree. That was fantastic for somebody that claims they never write one. But I did think of what you initially said in your first podcast. It should fit on a thank you card. Yeah, so I didn't want to blow it up too much, you know. No, that was perfect. Okay, good. Nice. Have I ever met this guy? No, probably not. He was was a little older. He has uh, three kids. Uh, he lives all the way out, like in Anahuac, Texas. I guess that was your partner that would that came Just, around. Justin. Justin, yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Justin's around. Well, is there any way we can uh, we can get this episode to to Brendan? 
Uh, to Brandon? Yeah. Brandon, yeah I'll, uh, I'll, you know what? When you link me on your, uh, when the episode's about to drop, my 609 followers on Instagram are going to know about this. And I know. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. Some call me an influencer. I don't know. I don't know. You, it's not for me to say. You have 60 times the followers that the Thank You Notes podcast does, just to put that. Today. Today. Okay. Wait till uh, Paul McCartney, Sir Paul, comes on the podcast. He's not getting any younger, so I need. We really need to step it up. I would reach out to him now. You never know. I don't know how you edit this, but do you remember the ranking system we came up with back when we used to all hang out? You, Scott, Pete, and Austin. Oh, uh, who was number one son? Yeah, because yes. y'all called me dad because I was older and I paid for stuff because <laughs> I had because I had a job. So y'all were always like, "Oh, you're the best dad. Thanks, thanks." That, that so. is true. I always ranked you number four, not because you were my fourth favorite, just because I know it just like really got to you. Uh, obviously, you were closer to the top always, always. Oh, now, now you tell me. <laughs> you were the only one who cared about it. I, I think that's why the guys would be like, hey, what's the ranking? And I would always, if you were there, I'd have to put you at number four. Tell the story about how I saved your life. Oh, you! I, how did you not bring this up? I should have written you a thank you list. Damn straight you should. I that I tell that story all the time. It's one of the only two times that I've ever been to a hospital and had to get surgery. You and I were going to go see a movie. I, do you recall what it was? United 93. It was the only thing. Is that what we were going to see? Yes. And I we stopped at Fuddruckers to eat dinner. And like anything at Fuddruckers, it has the squeezed cheese. So I'm sure we covered all of our fries in it. We went to a bookstore because it was a late, late movie. It was a two floor bookstore. We were just trying to kill time. And I started, you were on the second floor. And I, I had like three books in my hand and I started getting this really bad pain. And I had had abdominal pain issues for a decade and the doctors never could figure out what it was. At the time, I think I was 27. And I just started sweating through my clothes. And this, it got really embarrassing. I started unbuttoning my pants. Like I couldn't breathe. I looked like I ran a marathon. My my shirt was soaked through and you couldn't find me. So you just went out to the car and you called me. I couldn't even talk hardly. I was like, where are you? You're like, oh, I'm in the car. So I ran out there and I said, hey, I'm having these pains. And I remember you're like, all right, we're getting you to the hospital. So you start driving and you called, I think, Austin or one of the other guys. What I remember specifically is I was in so much pain. And you said, I think he's having appendicitis, which is probably the smart bet, right? And then you're talking to them for a second. And you go, let me ask. You said, hey, do you have insurance? And I, got, I, I couldn't even breathe or talk, but I was a state trooper. So I obviously had good benefits. I was like, yes. And you said, don't worry. I'm going to take you to Methodist, which was like the nicest ER. It's so nice that they hid the ER. Remember, yes. we couldn't find the sign. Like it wasn't a lit up ER sign by design, I, I would imagine. Yes. And you rolled down the window. There was a security guard. And you yelled, "Is where's the ER? And he's like, it's right here. And it was pitch black. So <laughs> I think you opened up the door or I did something. But I was leaned up against. So I fell onto the concrete. <laughs> so the security guard runs and he grabs a wheelchair. And the two of you hike me up in it. And he's pushing me as fast as he can. But he didn't put the foot pegs down. So I'm leaned over and my foot catches a crevice and I go head first onto the concrete a second time. And then he put me back in and I get in there. You kept telling me to keep me calm. You're like, don't worry. 
don't worry. The whole drive, you're like, we're going to get you some morphine. You're going to be fine. And I was screaming for it like I had been shot. I remember all the other guys from the crew showed up in scrubs and they walked in like they were doctors. Nobody even questioned that they belonged there. And y'all were, y'all were taking bets on what I had. It turns out it was my gallbladder that it was jam packed full of stones and sludge. And I finally got the morphine, which was good. But I remember I was much more lucid. My parents showed up. There was a really cute nurse. And I remember saying to her, like, Hey, like joking around. I was a joke for you guys. My mom didn't think it was funny. And I was like, She's like, Are you all right? I was like, Yeah. I was like, Don't worry. I was obviously not a Navy SEAL, but I was like, Ah, I'm shipping out to Iraq tomorrow. A Navy SEAL, clearly not a Navy SEAL. And she's snickering. I go, we're taught to ignore the pain. And she goes, honey, I was here when they brought you in. And I just shrunk down. <laughs> Even I was like, ah, never mind. I'm good. Because she heard me squealing. But now you saved my life. I was in, I, I could not have driven. I would, I would have ended up in Bentob or somewhere. I remember every time that nurse came, it was like every 10 minutes. And, was, and, and one more, one more thing. Just see if I can get a little more <laughs> morphine. Yeah. I was very calm about it. Like, I, I remember it feeling like euphoric, but I understand, like, how people get hooked on drugs now. I had a similar experience. I think this was last year. I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and my side is just on fire. I'm squirming around on the floor. My wife comes out. She said, what's going on? And I knew I was having a kidney stone. Ugh. And the baby upstairs asleep so she couldn't drive me to the hospital so i had to call an ambulance to drive me into my hospital as soon as i got there they gave me morphine and my life just immediately got better right they scanned me etc cetera, et cetera, and then they, they let me go and i eventually passed the stone i was thinking of you when all that happened i was like now i know i've never had a kidney stone but i've seen great men brought down by them. they are apparently very painful well there you go man we're ending this on a high note you have any uh, parting words to my dozens of listeners? I'm a big fan. Uh, obviously, Travis, I'm a big fan of yours, but I like that it is a very positive podcast. There's too much negativity going on. I'm trying. I'm trying my best to be super positive these days and and see the glass is half full. It's tough, but I listened to your your first few and I was like, this is nice. This is nice. Nobody had a meltdown. Nobody. It was it was just good thoughts. I don't know who's going to be my first meltdown. Not I. Maybe Obama. I bet he'll, I can get him to meltdown. You think so? I think so. Uh, I guess I have to end it this way. Uh, thank ah. you for coming on the podcast. Thanks Chavez. for having me. I had a great time. We'll end it there. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye. Good talk. Bye. You can follow Dan and his son at their Instagram account at Dan underscore VS underscore food underscore where they go around different restaurants throughout New York City, try them out, tell you what they thought, tell you how much they ate. It's kind of funny. Please review this show wherever you get your podcasts, five stars preferably if that's the way you feel. Please like and subscribe on Facebook or on Instagram. You can send me a text, send me a voicemail. All the information for this is in the show notes. I'll have another episode for you soon. I hope you're having a great day, great week. I'll see you next time. I have turned the score of this